Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hello there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. This is a show where we get to talk about how complicated the world of healthcare is. Every time I do this intro, I talk about how the puzzle has gotten bigger. It's a thousand piece Ever puzzle, growing. a three thousand piece puzzle, a thirty thousand piece puzzle, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. So, I'm like, as many guests as we get to have, we're still trying to figure it all out. So, all of our guests get to bring one of their expertise to the table to help, honestly, me and our audience try to figure it all out. So, I would like to give you a minute to introduce yourself. Great. Thanks. I'm Katie Allen. I'm the managing director of our healthcare practice with Bounteous, which is a digital experience company that focuses on innovation in health. We work a lot with our clients to think about innovation in two ways. First, by doing things better. There's things that we can do right now that will change both the member and the patient experience in the industry. And then doing better things, thinking big about innovation and how we just change the healthcare delivery system overall. I like both of those aspects. What can we do better right now? Oh, there's so much we can do better. One thing that comes to mind, you were just saying, ever complicated growing puzzle pieces. And we've had so many great innovators and disruptors come to the market with point solutions to solve problems, usually that people are experiencing on their own in that moment. Now we have this vast opportunity of solutions and we're starting to struggle about how we integrate those into a platform. Which is a good problem to have, right? It is a good problem to have. It's a complex problem. Yeah. Complex problem to solve. Okay. So how do you, how are you solving them and what are some of those solutions? I'm going to talk about this from the perspective of a caregiver. Okay. So many women play the role of caregiver in their their families' lives and even beyond their families. There's this actually, this is a staggering kind of, I think, statistic, which is about 60% of women who are unmarried and don't have children are still acting in the role of a healthcare provider or giver for someone who they love, which is just, I mean, (laughs) that's a lot. That is a lot. That is a lot. And I've recently, I was on a panel yesterday with this woman. She's fantastic. Her name is, <laughs> her name is Naomi Adams and she's from League, which is also a consumer experience platform that is integrating a number of these point solutions. And she and I were talking about the women's role as a caregiver and thinking about this role in two ways. The first being kind of this always on caregiver and the second being 
a crisis caregiver. Okay. And those moments as a caregiver are very different. And the way you interact with your loved one, but also with the, with the healthcare delivery system is also very, very different. And I personally, we talked about this a little bit last time. I am the mom of three neurodivergent children. Mm. I'm managing a seizure disorder of my own. Wow. And I have aging parents. I interface I'm always on when I'm interfacing with the healthcare system. And I am one of those women who is managing point solutions all over the place. One point solution for medication management. I have another one for health journaling and ticks and seizures. I have multiple patient portals because my kids see specialists that are both in and out of network all the time. Multiple patient portals that we're grappling with. Still very analog systems around like paper claims submission in the payer space for out-of-network providers. So I'm personally always on and I'm struggling with point solutions every day. Well, I mean, just what you just said right now, how many different portals do you Mm -hmm. have to access on a regular basis to take care of yourself and your loved ones? Exactly. And it's also a little surprising. I have to find time in my day during the week to actually schedule appointments. I mean, I hate talking on the phone now. I don't think anybody enjoys it, but I actually have to call offices (laughs) to make appointments because I'm not able to do that online. So that's just another, you know, you have to do it in their office hours and another moment in your day. So there's just so much opportunity when you think about that always on caregiver role. So can we talk about the differences between somebody who's a crisis caregiver and somebody who's constantly caregiving? Absolutely, yeah. So- Many women, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> we'll put it that way first. But many women also find themselves in a moment of crisis for the loved one, a healthcare crisis. And they're, you know, I'm managing the health for de- the health for dependents, so I have access to the necessary medical records and everything that I need for them. Women who are in these moments of crisis don't necessarily have access to what it is that they need to coordinate and even just receive updates on, on care for a loved one. Some of that can be as, I will say as simple, it's not as simple, but as just understanding the insurance that they have in that moment. That's right? not simple at all. No, it's yeah. not simple at all. And, and, and often we're dependent on finding a plastic card, right? To right. be able to do that, to be a steward of that for, for someone that you're caring for. So I think that experience is very different. Connectivity is if you're, if you're caring at a distance or from a distance. What are the services, let's say it's a parent, what are the services they are going to get as an inpatient? How do we help facilitate and support outpatient care post-discharge? We're still, a lot of us, leaving the hospital with a stack of papers. And that's not helpful if you're managing the care of a parent from a different state. Yeah. So there's so much opportunity to kind of bring those things together. How about bringing in the caregiver's voice to a lot of these people who are providing solutions? How do we do that? Do you have opinions? I have opinions. I would love to hear them. (laughs) I always have an opinion. (laughs) Well, I, I think kind of, I think the good news is is that the more that I'm working with clients, the more the caregiver is becoming part of that stakeholder audience. We can talk about this in a second. There are some headwinds that they face around investment and telling that value story for caregiver engagement. So we can not put that aside for a minute, but the conversation is starting to happen. Someone recently told me about United Healthcare has this beautiful campaign going on right now in Los Angeles, a big bill for it, big billboard. And I think it says something like, I stay strong for the people I love. Mm-hmm. And it's a woman with two of her children or family members around her. And it's targeted towards the caregiver. The conversation that we had was like, wow, what a beautiful campaign. I can't wait to see what United Healthcare is going to do to like get behind that and really improve that caregiver experience. But the conversation's starting and that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, you're making a really good point about having to take care of yourself, mm-hmm. right? You have to be healthy yourself in order to be caring for others, ideally. Absolutely. But we have not put an emphasis on self-care or respite yeah. for caregivers. 
It's not a fundamental, it's not part of the fun, the conversation we're having in the health industry. Yeah. And when we think about, I'm going to take this back a little bit to kind of like digital investment. Please. When we think about organizations who are starting to invest in a consumer experience strategy and an engagement strategy, and they're thinking about the digital component of that experience, we talk a lot about stakeholders and we talk a lot about ROI on investment and ROI. And that is more easily equatable to an employer group on the insurance side or a member or a patient in a hospital, less obvious and maybe a little more difficult to make tangible is that value realization and the ROI on investment in that caregiver journey. The conversation is, is starting, but it, it is not as an easy and ex, as extent as an extension. I mean, there's, yeah. And are we talking about caregivers who are doing it out of the kindness of their heart because they are the mom or a relative or somebody? Or are we talking about caregivers who that's their actual profession? I think you make such a great point. For the context of this conversation, I was really thinking about the unpaid caregiver yeah. who often is like the best care coordinator in the industry, right? Yeah. Who is completely undervalued by the healthcare industry and is often has the most insight and the most input, but is rarely considered part of the patient's care team. I have a sister and a niece who work as caregivers. And when they tell me about their experience and how much they have to do, how much they do as part of their work versus like the time commitment and also like the access they get to people's lives and what they are responsible for. When I think about it, I'm like, oh, I could never do that. It's a very intimate experience. It's a very intimate, a very intimate, intimate experience. Insanely intimate. I'm like, oh, they are seeing sides of people literally mm -hmm. that like <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it does, it's a hard job it's and, if, really and it hard re job. should really value it a lot more than we do we in do. our society it's an underpaid job it has a high rate of turnover yeah and there's a reason for that right and often we don't necessarily we don't what should I say, facilitate or we don't support patients who are learning to work with a caregiver, right? It right. feels you're very vulnerable. There's someone in your space. You don't know how to do it, right. right? For folks that do it for a living, there are a lot of times like in somebody's home 24 hours or 48 or 72 hours at a time, you know, like they're essentially dedicating their lives to be there for these people. Absolutely. We do need to value it more. I don't know how we do that and build that into the system, but that's one of the big problems. Well, I mean, it's heartening that the dialogue is starting. Yeah. And I'll say it's not, not every organi like organization is thinking this way or having this conversation yet, but I'm happy that it's beginning. Yeah. And we actually, we, we actually do see some large enterprise organizations starting to value that caregiver in a different way and are really thinking seriously about them as part of an engagement strategy and how that will help drive clinical outcomes, right? And it's better for it's better for the caregiver as well. And so you started out this conversation saying that there's things that we can do better now. And then you had the flip side of it that we could just do better. Can we go into that aspect of it? Into doing better things. Thank you. Yes, yes. into doing better things. The doing better things is challenging ourselves to think about the way that we deliver care in this country, to challenge ourselves in ways that seem like impossible. For example, everybody has this like bill pay kind of experience. I don't think anyone has ever said it's good, right? You get a you get a bill from a from a provider. A lot of them still come in the mail yep. to, for which you have to write a check or you can pay online. They're usually bigger than you'd anticipated. So that, that's a problem in and of itself. But that whole like experience of that payment process is really unsatisfying. And again, I hate calling people and I really don't like writing checks either. <laughs> but it's a world we live in now. How about we just figure out a way never to send a bill again? Oh, that'd right? be nice. Most people are like, 
that's impossible. Yeah. But is it really impossible? How would you make that happen? How would we do that thing better? I don't have the answer to that, (laughs) but I want people to think about it, right? Let's think about what that might look like. So I think inciting that kind of innovation, allowing for that kind of conversation. I mean, there were, there were years, years ago, we never thought that we would be thinking about payments in the healthcare space differently. And now there's conversations about Venmo and PayPal. And so that kind of innovative thinking and, and frankly, pulling from other industries like consumer driven industries, I think is going to be really important for, for healthcare in the coming years. Well, when we've talked I just got out of a conversation around talking about data and access to it, you know, and whether or not we can, I'm speaking to how many portals you have to get into to get like the, oh yeah, like all of that conversation. I'm just like, we need to be doing better on that over the long term. Right. And it hopefully has gotten better in your experience, even in the last few years. But I mean, we have so far to go. It has gotten somewhat better. And I often think about like an aggregator, right? Is there right. is there one place I could go that would enable me to see and work with and and leverage all of my children's health information that is disparate right, right. now within different health systems and different portals? I don't know the answer to that, but what I can tell you is I am absolutely one of those people who'd be like, take it all. I'll sign it all away. Yeah. Take all of my data and make this experience better. And maybe that's over like too much, too much trust. No, I don't think so. But I think we have, we're seeing that trend. Yeah. We are seeing more people saying, if you can make this better for me, please take my data. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the conversation. Yeah. I mean, literally the conversation I just came out of was a Tefka one in QHINS where it's like, okay, it would be really nice to be able to capture birth to death information. So considering multiple people, multiple doctors, maybe multiple places that you've lived that you have one place that you log into and can see all of your information aggregated. Yes. Aggregated. Yes. And for, and for the people that you're caring for too, right? Yeah. So that would be tremendous. So tell me what's on the horizon for you. And also I've like, since we have spoken last, like, tell me everything. Tell you everything. (laughs) Um. (laughs) Don't leave anything out. I'm, you know, continuing to work in my role with Bounteous. I will say things have been great. I'm healthy. Congratulations. I've been seizure-free for two years. Okay. That's a little personal, which is wonderful. My kids are doing great also. All neurodivergent children doing great. Can I ask about more about that? Because I'm just out of curiosity. So, okay. On the seizure side of things, I didn't know that about you. I didn't. So how how do you handle that? And what is the experience like of having a seizure? I've fainted before. I can't imagine it's anything similar, but like... I think it's similar in that you fainted, but you probably don't remember the fainting. Right. right. That, that you know that maybe you weren't feeling great. And then... I remember the, the waking thing you knew, up. You were like on the floor. Yeah. The thing about having a seizure disorder is that... It's incredibly traumatic for the people around you. Yep. But for the person who's having the seizure, I mean, when you regain consciousness, then often what you feel is like just terrible that all of the people around you had to experience that seizure right. and witness that because it's it's not great. I mean, the first time that I had a seizure and my husband explained to me what it was like, I mean, I was, I was, I cried. It was horrible to think about my husband and my children kind of like witnessing that and the helplessness that they may have felt and obviously the concern and the panic. And the time that it takes, like to, do they last? Is it seconds? Is it minutes? Yeah. So I have what's called general epilepsy, which is, it's kind of like when you think about a movie and you think about someone falling to the ground and having a grand mal seizure, that's what general epilepsy is. And they can last anywhere from, you know, 30 seconds to five minutes or longer. It just kind of depends on the individual and like the event. And the thing about, I think seizures, one of the things about seizures that's difficult is 
you know, the seizing may last just a few minutes or, you know, 30 seconds. It feels like forever for the people that are with you. But then there could be anywhere 20 minutes or more where your body's just shut down and there's heavy, like heavy, slow breaths before you regain consciousness. And in some ways that is just as concerning and worrying for the people around you as well. Yeah, it is. And especially what happens if you're by yourself, right? Yes. Yes. So unfortunately, people who die from epilepsy often die because of an accident, right? So there's a lot of kind of like, don't swim by yourself, don't take baths. There's things that, you know, are precautions in life. But with, as somebody who's living with epilepsy, I can tell you that, you know, I've just gotten to the point where I'm like, I have to live my life. Right. Like I cannot live in fear. For, for a long time, I wouldn't get on a treadmill. I wouldn't go running. I was scared to be in the house by myself. I did not want to be alone with my children. I was very, very concerned about that. And then we all adapted and I was like, it's not, li- I just have to live. Yeah. I just have to live. So that's hard. That's hard for a lot of people who are managing a chronic condition to, to get their head around. But, and I imagine it's not routine. It's not like, like oh, I can anticipate it. It happens once a month and it's oh, on no. that, you know, and it might happen once a year, once every five years exactly or. Right. That's exactly right. And in, typically there's no warning. So everyone has triggers. I know my triggers, which is lack of sleep, dehydration, and stress. No big deal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All the things that, you know, professional mom who's who's traveling for work, you know, I don't experience any of that. But you have to pay close close attention. It's like someone who has diabetes has to pay very close attention to their blood sugar. And, you know, you just have to know your body. You have to know how you're feeling. Is it something that you can manage through medication or is it through meditation? You know? Meditation, I do not know. Medication, yes. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Many people who live with a seizure disorder, can it can be managed through medication. Some have disor- like uh, disorders that just cannot be managed through medication. And that's a much harder road than I've had to travel for sure. But I would say there's very few of us. I think it's like maybe one in 13 people have epilepsy. That sounds like a lot. That sounds like a lot. It's too many. I don't know. We'll Google it, but (laughs) it is definitely, it varies across, it varies types of epilepsy vary across, you know, people who are struggling with it. Well, I'm glad to hear that you haven't had one for two years and I hope that that trend continues. Yeah, me too. I I have every reason to believe it will. So if you don't mind my asking a little bit on the neurodivergent side, because I've, we at another event similar to the one that we are at, I was able to talk to somebody, a neurodivergent CEO, where she was talking about providers who are neurodivergent taking care of neurodivergent patients. And it was really interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. And it was really great to just hear, even in places like this, that it's, we're in Vegas, right? Yep. It's pretty overstimulating of like how you can care for yourself and things like wearing glasses or uh, like sunglasses inside sort of thing to kind of help with the lighting or making sure that you take some quiet time. But how do you manage having, I'm sure it's three different types of neurodivergence. Like that's a lot to manage it too. It is. And depending on whatever their needs are or types of sensory, you know, sensitivities, how do you go about that? My two older children who are 15 and 12 are, have learned kind of like the skills that they need, the coping skills that they need. They know they're pretty self-starters. They know how to self-advocate. They, they can pretty much self-direct in that space. My youngest, who's eight years old, he has different sets of challenges than they do. And sensory is a, is a significant one. And 
you know, we, we struggle with like even just socks, like finding socks. We go through lots of socks, lots of shoes. We can't find like the right pair of shoes. Has to be just right. So even if you find one, it won't, one pair of socks that like, oh, this is the brand. You're not just going to buy like 40. No, because then we go through the entire package to find just like two socks, you know, that work in that, in that package. And every, every child's different. No, no, no. But this is still fascinating. So what would, what's the difference between if they're all the same socks? Like how are they different? Only he feels the difference. Only he feels the difference. Yeah. Wow. Only he feels a difference. Okay. And we can buy, you know, multiple shoes that are the same brand, but we can only find like one set of shoes. I think Zappos actually told us that we weren't allowed to turn, return any more shoes. Oh, really? Because we were buying them in such high volume to try and find a pair that fit him and then sending them all back. It's wow. kind of funny. But yeah, so that is like a challenge for him. But also he's fantastic. We go to the movies. He knows he needs his headphones in the movies. So he also is kind of learning how to cope with that. However, I will say for, for kids who are neurodivergent and for my youngest son, there is emotional regulation is really difficult. Sure. Usually occupational therapy and PT and behavioral therapies are all kind of required for that intervention to help with emotional regulation and to help connect. This is a pro- like difficulty for him to connect his, what he's feeling to an, a tangible, like to be able to describe a descriptor. Right. Because often he'll the way he'll react to something. And I'll say, honey, what are you feeling? And he's like, I don't know, but I don't like the way my body feels. Okay. And that's how he's able to... Can he identify it? Like, oh, it's in my it's in my chest. Tummy, it's in my tummy, usually in my tummy, or sometimes it's the whole body. Yeah. Right? The whole body. And if you use the emotion wheel where they're looking at, like, does that is that helpful for him? He does some of that, like colors with his therapists. Yeah. But at home, <laughs> it's a lot harder at home. You're with your parents. I mean, you, these kids like take liberties with their parents that I'm they sure. don't like in school and with, with therapists and, and what have you. But, you know, he's, he's great. He's also learning those skills, but it's, it is, it's hard for, it's hard for those little ones. And I imagine just growing up, trying to understand that about yourself and knowing, and I'm sure he doesn't experience himself as different from anybody, anyone, because how we only get to experience well, our own body, yeah. but you get to that age and you see, you start yeah. to see the way kind of the rest of the world is reacting and, and that kind of thing. I, you know, one of the, since kind of you know, he was born into my life. One of the things I've often thought about is two things, actually. One is it's incredibly frustrating how the healthcare system doesn't necessarily recognize the need for interventions in a child of his age and do not cover services like OT, PT, unless you are diagnosed like on the spectrum. Okay. So that is really frustrating, <laughs> a very frustrating process. As you can imagine, for for families that can't afford to pay for out-of-pocket services, it just seems impossible. And one thing that we do know about young boys and men who have ADHD or other like severe sensory or neurodivergent divergencies, they don't cope well as adults if they don't receive intervention yeah. early on. And that leads to a whole host of like bipolar disorder, you know, employability, homelessness. I mean, it is, it's a sad path. And it's just one of the things that I don't understand why the medical community cannot just make a commitment to providing that kind of of intervention. And then I also think about workplace, like what kind of job will my son have when he grows up, right? That space in the world. I should introduce you to that, to the woman that I'm talking about. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, because the lens in which she is working and it was just so powerful to hear them as like, oh, she's turning it in from the medical community and reaching this particular population. And I was like, oh, that we need more of that. There's so many people that experience. I mean, honestly, I questioned myself. I was like, I was like, oh, maybe I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You never know. You right? don't know. Especially yeah. like this gen- 
generation, this younger generation has like, there's like a level of awareness, right? A, a, right. A, amongst practitioners. And we're able to diagnose more readily and, and identify opportunities for intervention. I feel like when I was growing up, it was like all the kids who had ADHD or neurodivergent in some way were like the bad kids sure. in class. Yeah, they get um, labeled a certain way. Yeah. I mean, how do you handle that if your kids are labeled? Does that still happen? Are it they? Does. It does still happen. It, I, actually, my husband and I were talking about this. My youngest, he's so cute. He's just so adorable and sweet and people love him because he's adorable. But he's started to grow over the summer and get bigger and go up in height and he no longer looks eight. He's probably like trending closer to like 10 years old. It becomes, the behaviors become less tolerable when you it's an older right. child. Right. People react to him differently. They have different expectations of his behavior. So that's when you start to see kind of like the world <laughs> kind of, you know, I said closing in yeah. and making his community really small because he's become becoming very self-aware of that. Mm. There's so many children like him. It's If you could wave a magic wand, what would your magic wand do? In terms of your kids, really. Oh, in terms, in of, terms of my kids? Not of anything. I though. wouldn't just change like, them for a second. I yeah. would change the world around them. I would yeah. just change the world, the way the world interfaces with them and supports them and provides community to them. And yeah. they're perfect. Yeah, I'm sure that they are. That's lovely. Thank you for sharing all of this and being open. I'm like, oh, let me tell, let me ask all these oh, personal yeah. questions. Absolutely. <laughs> I really appreciate it because it's it's nice to be able to learn what your experience is and, you know, on a professional and of course on a personal basis. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Katie, if people want to follow your work, connect with you or, you know, be inspired by all that you're doing out in the world, where would you direct them? LinkedIn. Okay. Easy enough. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you, and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast, or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.